Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. This week, I'm going to be diving into the Craigslist murder case. In the spring of 2009 in Boston and Rhode Island, women were being lured to hotel rooms through Craigslist. They did not know who exactly they were meeting, and this led to one of those women being murdered. These are just the ones we know about. Whoever was committing these acts were cold-blooded and carefree. He never tried to conceal his face. He was seen on multiple security cameras after the crimes. He kept meeting women on Craigslist. He left evidence behind and he even kept his gun that he used in the murder in his home. Who was this monster and why was he so confident? Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with this case. Some of you may have heard of this Craigslist murderer before. It was highly publicized in 2009 because many aspects of this case are almost unbelievable. This was before Facebook Marketplace when Craigslist was probably, I'm going to say probably, the number one way to sell and buy things in your local area. And it didn't require placing an ad in the newspaper and then paying for that ad. I think I think newspaper ads used to be paid per letter. Could you imagine putting your couch up for sale in the newspaper and having to calculate out how much it's going to cost by your by how many letters you use? That's just crazy to me to think about that's how we used to do this, but Craigslist came out and I mean today Basically, everyone uses Facebook Marketplace for local local buying and selling. But this is when Craigslist was in its heyday, its glory days. I think people still use it, actually. Um, and people on Craigslist in 2009, they're selling everything from furniture, cell phones, and services. Services including erotic services, which we will find out is a very dangerous way to conduct business of that sort even if safeguards are put into place. People in the line of work of erotic services, they have to be skilled in reading people in situations. And the perpetrator in this case was very good at appearing to be something he was not. He looked trusting. He looked harmless. Nobody thought he was capable of doing what he did, not even his own girlfriend, which this really gives me some... Ted Bundy flashbacks. I'm just getting some Ted Bundy-ish feels here. Uh, I may use the word allegedly from time to time in this episode, and that's not because there's a question of if he did it, but because of the fact he was never found guilty and sentenced. I will cover why. I will cover why that was at the end at the end of this uh, and it's probably not because of what you're thinking or maybe it is. April 10th 2009 
A 29-year-old escort named Trisha was set to meet a new client at a Boston hotel. The hotel is called The Westin, and from what I understand, it is very much an upper-class hotel in a very nice area in Boston. Trisha, she will scope out the new client before allowing them to enter into her room, and she would often do this by seeing them in the hallway or meeting them outside the elevator. And she would have a brief encounter with them and just assess them to see if any immediate red flags are flying. And I could imagine she's really good at this. She would have to be really good at this for what she does. Uh, That evening, she does this and she determines quickly she has nothing to worry about with this client and she invites the man into her room. Trisha advertises her services on Craigslist, and this is where the client had found her listing and got in touch with her to arrange this date. Her ad read she was from Las Vegas uh, and said, if you want to spend some time with a sweet blonde, give me a call. Uh, I'm pretty sure she traveled to Boston for clients, like specifically for clients. And this would mean she is most likely what I would guess to be more of a high-end escort. And I could imagine her services are not cheap. She's hosting her clients in very nice hotels, She's flying back and forth for these clients, and by all means, she seems very professional. Once inside the hotel room, the man pulls a gun on Trisha, and he instructs her to lay down while he ties her up, then asks her where her cash, cards, and valuables are. Trisha is in no position to argue, and she figures the easiest way out of this alive is is to stay calm and give him everything and she does she tells the man to look in her purse and he takes i think it was eight hundred dollars in cash he takes credit cards she had some gift cards trisha asks the man if he can please leave her id so she can at least get home and he actually does this Staying calm, it pays off for Trisha, and she's not harmed further. She's not sexually assaulted. She is not physically abused. And the man is seemingly very polite to her. The man wasn't yelling. He would ask her to be quiet instead of telling her to shut up. He wasn't using swear words. And he asked, that's right, he asked her for her consent if he could take her underwear. And she was shocked. She said yes. And as he was grabbing it, um, I read in an article that had he have looked at her face when he was doing this, her face would have looked like, what the hell is going on here? Like she was so thrown off by all of this. I guess all the cash and credit cards to him were fair game, but He found the need to ask if he could take her underwear and he was pointing a gun at her and tying her up and robbing her, but he was doing it politely. So it was very confusing to Trisha. Um, And this was also going to seem strange to investigators. This is not the typical MO of of somebody who's going to do this. It was very odd. The man leaves the room once he has finished robbing Trisha and Trisha, she's still tied up and she's listening for him to maybe re-enter the hotel room or maybe if he's pacing down up and down the hallway, but he's not, he's, he's gone. And Trisha is alive and she's a little bit shaken up, but 
by all means, she escaped this situation with her life. And once she is confident that he is gone, she runs out of the hotel room, into the hallway, still tied up, and finds help. She actually reports this robbery to police, which I believe the robber did not count on her doing because of her line of work, what her services were, what she was selling. Uh, He didn't think that she would go to police, but she did. Uh, And it's a good thing she did. Police actually took a detailed report. They listened to her, which can sometimes not always be the case in these situations. So, okay, Boston police, I see you being good at your job. Unfortunately, police couldn't locate the man. I am assuming he used a fake name to book Trisha's services uh, and perhaps a burner phone to contact her and communicate with her about the date. Four nights later, just down the street from the Weston Hotel, Uh, There is the Marriott Hotel, and this is where 25-year-old Julissa Brisman is meeting her client for a exotic massage at 10 p.m. Like Trisha, Julissa advertises her services on Craigslist and visits uh, Boston to meet clients. Julissa, she comes up to Boston from New York, and she has a friend who helps her schedule and book clients. And this friend is also a little bit of security, as her friend knows exactly where she is and who she's with and what time. And they call each other to ensure Julissa's safety after these uh, booked clients leave. Julissa's Craigslist ad reads that she is selling exotic massages. It says she's only in Boston for half a week and that to book her services, the client must respond via email and provide a contact number. And then they will contact the client to arrange the appointment. Julissa was attending college and she was going to graduate soon and become a substance abuse counselor as she herself knew what it was like to have a substance abuse problem and how to overcome it. Julissa decided to turn her life around a few years earlier and she was succeeding. She had even attended an AA meeting while in Boston while she was visiting and she was committed to her life of sobriety. Julissa, she also did some lingerie modeling and a bit of acting. The same man who arranged a meeting with Trisha four nights previous was the same man organizing an appointment with Julissa on this night. 10 p.m. he shows up at the Marriott and he goes to Julissa's room. By 10.06 p.m. he is seen leaving the hotel very calmly. When I say that, I mean it. He looks like someone going out to grab a bite to eat or going to catch a movie. But the reality was that Julissa was lying dead in a pool of blood in her hotel room. Upon the man's arrival, Julissa had uh, let him in. And as soon as she turns her back, he pulls a gun on her. This time he is not met with a cooperative attitude. And Julissa fights him the man struggles with julissa hits her on the head multiple times with the butt of his gun and shoots her three times he shoots her in the stomach the chest and in the heart this fight was vicious and due to the injuries found on on julissa the police could tell she fought really hard the evidence also shows that the man used way more force than needed, almost like he enjoyed harming Julissa. If the goal was to just 
keep her quiet or subdue her to rob her, he went way, way, way above and beyond that. After the attack, he leaves, and that's when he is seen on the surveillance cameras exiting the building without a care in the world. He could walk past anybody, and nobody would suspect him of doing what he had just did. He was not freaking out in any way. He looked calm, cool, and collected. I'm not exactly sure how Julissa's body was discovered, but uh, she was supposed to call her friend after that appointment to tell her everything went okay and that she was fine. But obviously she never made that call. That call never came to her friend. So it's possible her friend notified the hotel, maybe asked them to go check on her, or it's possible someone called security after hearing the gunshots because there were three gunshots. Uh, but I read that a security guard found Julissa's body in the hotel hallway tied up and bloody so I'm not sure if she managed to get the door open and kind of fall half into the hallway or or what but she was discovered uh, by a security guard very quickly and this leads me to believe that she had managed to crawl into the hallway looking for help or the hotel room door was open or her friend called security um, but she was found quite quickly and police were notified and they start putting some pieces of this puzzle together. And they realize this is similar, if not exact, the MO of the guy they're looking for uh, in the robbery case involving Trisha four nights earlier. Both victims advertise services on Craigslist. Both of the victims are in similar industries. Both of them were tied up. Uh, both met a man they didn't know at a hotel uh, and the hotels are very close to each other. It was very clear this was the same guy who had done both of these crimes. Police contact Trisha and they ask her if she could have a look at the surveillance footage. She says, yeah, of course, I'll have a look at that. Uh, when she sees the footage, she is 100% certain it's the same guy who robbed her. But she has no idea this footage is from the Marriott where a woman was just murdered. <laughs> that would have been uh, chilling for her to piece that together. I could imagine when Trisha discovers that the guy that had robbed her four nights earlier had just killed a woman while probably attempting to rob her in the same way. It was, yeah, that would have been terrifying. This man, though, he's not done yet. He just murdered a woman, and then two nights later, he meets up with another woman who he finds on Craigslist. Craigslist again. And this woman is advertising private lap dances for $200. But this time, it's in Rhode Island, not Boston. The woman uh, who is named Cynthia arranges the meetup at a Holiday Inn. And sure enough, this man shows up. It's now April 16th, 2009. April 10th, this man had robbed Trisha. Uh, the 14th, he murders Julissa. And on the 16th, um, he's at it again with Cynthia. But he doesn't know something. He doesn't know that Cynthia and her husband, they work closely. And her husband, he's never far away. Uh, and he does that on purpose so he can keep an ear out and kind of watch over what's happening during these private sessions so if anything goes wrong her husband can jump in and 
uh, calm it down or, or help his wife. The man, though, who's booked her services, he thought Cynthia would be alone, and it's a good thing she wasn't. Cynthia's husband waits in the bar downstairs, and they have a system in place where he calls his wife after the client shows up just to make sure everything is going smoothly. Cynthia lets the client, the man, into her hotel room, and he pulls a gun on her. He ties her up. He tries to gag her with a ball gag, which I believe he he brought himself. And he starts demanding money and valuables, but then her phone starts to ring. It's her husband. He's calling to make sure it's all good, but it's not all good. And when Cynthia fails to answer the phone, her husband comes barging into the room and he is met with a scene. Let me tell you, this would have been shocking. And this scene was his wife is tied up. There's a man holding a gun. He's rifling through her belongings. And it is just not what her husband expected to see. This shocks both men. It is enough to make the gunman flee the scene. But before he does, he manages to steal a pair of Cynthia's underwear. And he also takes the ball gag he may or may not have brought with him, but he did take that. And this ball gag, it comes back later. This isn't the last time we're going to hear about this. So the gunman is again caught on hotel security cameras. And again, he did nothing to hide his face. Nothing. Police are notified and they come in and they get this footage. And again, they're like, what the fuck? It is the same guy. They think, holy shit, he's on some kind of spree. Who the hell is this guy? The homicide unit... They learn that Julissa's friend who helped her organize clients had an important email address. And this email address was the one this gunman used to answer the Craigslist ad. This same IP address was used when Trisha was emailed by the man they're looking for. uh, And police, they're able to connect the two email addresses and get this IP address because of this police could trace the IP address to like a physical address but first they had to subpoena the internet provider to get that physical address and that was alarming to me because shouldn't police just have access to that without hassle is that a security breach is that some under privacy laws I'm not sure but they did get it police they they get an address and they believe they know who they're looking for now the address is to an apartment building and they believed their suspect lived on the third floor in an apartment he shared with his fiance. Police didn't go in right away. First, they wanted to make sure this was their guy. They wanted to be sure and that he matched the description of the man that they had captured on the surveillance footage. They wanted to line a few things up here first. Three days after Cynthia's encounter with the gunman, police are tailing who they believe to be their perpetrator. On April 19th, which is nine days after Trisha was tied up and robbed, police are moving in fast and they're collecting vital evidence. They follow this guy and his fiance while the two shop. So they go out on a day shopping and police are right there watching them and they just watch them. When the suspect touches anything, they swoop in and lift fingerprints off the item. 
I believe one of the things was even their shopping cart. After they put their shopping cart away, police were like, get that, get prints. Any items they were touching in the store and like placing back on the shelves, police were grabbing those, lifting fingerprints off them. Because at the crime scene, there was duct tape left. I believe it was Trisha's crime scene when she had been, uh, had duct tape placed over her mouth. The man who taped her mouth shut, he didn't wear gloves. So they had a perfect fingerprint from the duct tape that was taken from Trisha's mouth. This savvy police work paid off because they got a match. The man they were tailing, the man who they were watching shop was the same man or at least had the same fingerprint, which I mean, what is that? Like 7 billion to one odds. It's not him or something. Um, that it's the same guy who's committing these crimes. And police are watching this guy's every move and they sit outside and they watch his house. The same day police obtain those fingerprints from the shopping trip, they see him and his fiance leave the apartment with packed bags, suitcases, and they know they have to move fast. I'm assuming they are worried he will leave their jurisdiction, which is going to complicate things. And police are like, nope. And they follow him. So they're following him. They're not pulling him over yet, but they're following him. In the meantime, the police have also obtained this man's student ID. And while all this is happening, while police are tailing this man, afraid he's making a run for it, they have Trisha look at his student ID and they ask her, is this the guy? Is this the guy that tied you up and robbed you? And she says, oh, Yes, like that is him, all right. Actually, she said she was a million percent certain. <laughs> that is pretty certain. A million percent, I would say that's very certain. This would have been such a chaotic time. This, the police were in such a, a time crunch. They had to get all this evidence lined up while they're potentially watching their suspect drive away to another state so they were working quickly now police had as much evidence as they needed to pull over and arrest the man and this man's fiance she's shocked she has no idea what the fuck is going on police are only saying the bare minimum at this point and they just tell them that the man needs to go to boston right now for questioning and police said the man was calm and cool didn't seem worried or surprised he was like okay with the man in custody they can now search his apartment and they find exactly what they need actually they find way more than they need and let me tell you about what they found in his apartment which by the way is also his fiance's apartment and his fiance had no idea none none at all that this stuff was in her home. Police find the ball gag used on Cynthia and they know this because it has her DNA on it. And it also has the suspect's DNA on it. And this obviously links him directly to Cynthia. Police find zip ties and duct tape used to tie up his victims. They find Julissa's blood on his shoe and when I saw a picture of the shoe it was so obvious it was blood I cannot figure out why the man didn't wipe his shoe down with a wet towel but he didn't he just walked around with Julissa's blood on his shoe 
if you're still not convinced this was their man, then these next pieces of evidence may seal the deal for you. Police discovered a medical textbook that when they opened it up, it was hollowed out and inside was a gun and bullets. And those bullets matched the bullets found in Julissa's body. The medical textbook the man used to hide his murder weapon in uh, from his fiance, I'm assuming, or just from anybody, it was the infamous Gray's Anatomy textbook that all medical students have. Do you still need more evidence? Because I have more and okay, here it is. Police flip over the man's mattress, the same mattress he and his fiance share together and hidden under the mattress are socks. When the socks are examined, it's found that there are underwear stuffed into the socks. When the underwear are examined, Trisha's DNA is discovered on two pairs of them. And there were more pairs of underwear. There were were more than just two pairs, but those two could tie him directly to Trisha's case. Police now have linked this man to all three crimes with evidence found in his apartment. Something that was chilling is that police found quite a few pairs of underwear, up to 16 pairs of underwear. Some, they didn't know where they came from, and it's believed these are from victims that never came forward. These underwear, they were what police would call uh, trophies. These were like this sexual predator's trophies. This man liked to prey on victims he thought wouldn't go to police. And when police dig into this guy's past, they find and they believe he was most likely, he he started all of this by targeting the people in the trans community. And I will talk more about that soon. Uh, It is possible he had robbed more people. Who else's underwear did he have hidden under his mattress? There was so many pairs of underwear found I mean, and only what, two, three, four could be accounted for, but there was 16 found that it's, that still remains unanswered. The next day, police make a public announcement and they tell the world, we made an arrest. And this is on April 20th. Uh, Police moved so fast on getting this guy by April 20th. They're announcing to the public they've made an arrest. It was just six days earlier, Julissa was murdered. And now police have the man they believe who committed these crimes in custody. People are shocked. The man is 23-year-old Philip Markoff, known as the Craigslist killer. Philip Markoff, he was a second-year medical student at Boston University School of Medicine. And I don't know anything about schools of medicine, but apparently that's a really good one. If you can get into that, it means you're pretty smart. Um, To anyone on the outside looking in, it appeared he had the ideal life. Even his fiance was fooled and had no idea about his secret life. Most people would see Philip as good looking, smart, successful. You know, he was in this journey to become a doctor. He had completed pre-med and he was on his way to a respected career in medicine. There's even a picture of him online receiving his white doctor's jacket in a ceremony. 
in this image, he has a huge smile on his face and his arms are in the air as he accepts his jacket at this, hey, you're going to be a doctor ceremony. I think it happens in the first year of medical school. Um, and there was like a pretty, pretty prolific um, newspaper or magazine, The Globe, something like this. They had taken it. Side note, this makes me wonder what the fuck happens in second year medical school? Because some of you may remember the case I covered about the French con man that was enrolled for 12 years in second year medical school. And he fooled everyone into thinking he was a doctor working for the CDC in Switzerland. And he had something like an 18 year con going before his wife found out or she was starting to find out. And then he murdered basically his entire family. And I believe I titled that uh, case that I covered the longest con. And I covered it about two months ago. If you want to go back and listen to that one, if you haven't heard it, that guy was also in his, his second year of med school when he went off the rails, I guess you could say. Um, so what the hell happens in second year medical school? Because this is now two cases I've covered where second year med school students in their second year, this is the point of conflict. I don't know. Anyways, Philip Markoff, he was born just outside of New York in February of 1986. His father was a dentist. His parents divorced. His mother remarried, had another child, divorced again. He had a bit of a, a, a rocky childhood there. Um, and eventually his mother is kind of forced back into the working world and she gets a job at a casino. Casinos and gambling, they seem to be a huge problem later in life for Philip Markoff. And maybe this is where it stems from because as a young boy, his mother would bring him to work with her while she had to do a, like attend a meeting or pick something up or whatever. And, and she would bring young Philip there. And it was this time spent in the casino that Philip learned. I don't know if he learned how to play poker in the casino. Of course, he wasn't gambling in the casino. He was just a child. But he was very much exposed to to that environment. Casinos are dangerous for adults because the excitement, the bright lights, the noises, the dopamine hits. It looks like people are having so much fun. You got dinging and clinking and wheels being spun. It's windowless. It's clockless. You don't know what time it is. It is a environment purposely made for you to forget all your troubles and have these high hopes that you're gonna win big and life is gonna be amazing and this is meant to lure in adults into this false sense of winning so to a child this is going to lure them in no problems a casino would be irresistible to a child it would look like the funnest thing in the world the funnest place in the world well, maybe not more fun than Disney World because there's like no rides, but there's a lot of energy happening in casinos. I think Philip was about 12 years old when he started playing poker, which is just crazy to me. I've had people explain poker to me so many times. And as soon as someone starts teaching me a card game, any card game, poker, whatever, uh, I zone out and I hear nothing but twisted muffling words. <laughs> um, but here Philip was learning poker. By the time Philip was in high school, he enjoyed golf. 
he was on a golf team. He was in the National Honor Society. And he also loved playing Texas Hold'em, which of course is poker. And he was good at it. Apparently, his bluffing was outstanding. I'm pretty sure everyone knows that bluffing basically means lying to someone's face and making it believable. But in case you didn't, that's what it means. And Philip, he's good at this. Lots of people play poker and are good at bluffing. It's part of the game. Uh, But for Philip, he was going to extend this skill into other areas and nobody would suspect a thing. We have this teenager who is playing golf. He's on the National Honor Society. He wants to get into medicine. He's good looking. His father is a dentist. By all means, it appears he is on the right path. After high school, he goes to pre-med. He volunteers at a hospital one day. And there, he meets a bit of an older woman. I I don't know exactly how much older. Maybe three years older. Um, Her name's Megan. And she's volunteering there as well. And she has the same dream as Philip to become a doctor. They notice each other. They start talking. And Philip asks her, hey, do you want to come to the casino? And she says, yeah. Was it a date? I don't know, maybe, but the two, they do start dating, and this is in 2005. By the time he graduates pre-med and moves to Boston, the two are in love, and they move to Boston together. Records show that in 2007, Philip joins a sex site, and his screen name is Sex Addict 53835. What those numbers mean, I don't know. They seem pretty random, 53835. His profile included pictures of his penis. <laughs> uh, yep, he put a dick pic right on there and also pictures of him posing nude. Remember, he and his girlfriend have moved in together at this point. He's not single. She knows nothing about this. He is creating this profile he's taking pictures of his dick he's putting nude photos of himself online he's calling himself a sex addict and she knows nothing about this he writes let me just read to you what he writes on his page I am looking for anyone open-minded. Try new fetishes or show me what they know. I enjoy women, older women, but I really want to meet a TV slash TG slash TS for friendship and experimentation. I'm open to DOM and switches, but I'm open to experimenting with subs, unquote. The TV TG TS, that's an abbreviation for transgender individuals and other other ways that they phrase it on this site and some people believe it's possible that members of the trans community were his first victims i believe there were because i believe this because there are many pairs of underwear found under his mattress when he was caught um and it's possible some of those are related to crimes that were never reported philip he had also emailed a craigslist ad for a M for T, which apparently means uh, men for transgender. So this is, um, he just, he seems to be really knowledgeable. Like he's using terms like, where was it that he wrote on his profile? Um, He's open to DOM and switches, but I'm open to experimenting with subs. Like I have no fucking clue what that means. So 
he's clearly done his research. He's it did say that he was on like bondage sites and transgender sites and um so it does say that he was on a lot of these these sites and I guess he was learning all of this but he wanted to reach out and he wanted to learn more because he says um he's looking for somebody to teach them what they know Philip, he's living this secret sex life and all the while his girlfriend thinks that she has a loyal, loving partner. He's lying to her face. He's bluffing. He's keeping secrets. He's sneaking around and she has no idea. Amongst all this betrayal, he asks his girlfriend to be his wife. Yeah. So he's got two completely separate fucking lives here one person who knows this man could have a completely different person in mind when another person knows this man like they're like oh no the philip i know you know and then they'd be like no the philip i know so he had just two completely lives that he kept completely secret from each other and he was so good at doing this that not even his his fiance or girlfriend fiance Megan who lived with him knew any of this so like I said his, his girlfriend's name is Megan but he calls her pocket for some reason nobody seems to know why uh, but when he proposed he was like hey put your hand in my pocket and when she did the ring was in his pocket which I mean, that could be cute, but this guy is a monster, so whatever, it's not cute. Another thing that comes out later is that while in pre-med, Philip forced himself onto one, his, one of his female friends, but thankfully she got away. I am telling you, this guy, it he he has to have more victims out there somewhere, people who have never spoken up because this is that came out that, that when he was in pre-med he did that and I think that it came out later but it happened way before he was caught for these other crimes also he is still gambling he is still going to casinos he's still playing poker and by the sounds of it he had a lot of debt and now he has a wedding to plan and pay for and he's only in his second year of medical school. So he's got a long way to go before he becomes a, a doctor, which means I could imagine would mean a ton of debt, like more debt to pay for school. One day in 2009, Philip, he steals the ID of one of his classmates. And this classmate kind of looks like Philip. So Philip, he takes this stolen ID and he goes and he buys a gun, the same gun that was found in the Gray's Anatomy textbook when police searched Philip and Megan's home. What? Okay, so was he, what, what was he planning to do with that gun? He stole an ID to buy it. So obviously he wasn't using it to go to the shooting range or just to have this gun for protection. He was obviously buying it for sinister reasons. Was he planning the robberies at this point? This was early 2009, by the way. So there is a lot going on in Philip's life that he hides from everyone. It is crazy to think about these 
two separate lives he's living. He is on track to be a doctor. He is by all means brilliant in his studies. He's planning a wedding with a beautiful woman who may also become a doctor. And yet here he is lurking in the shadows, almost trying to blow his life up. He's robbing. He's murdering. He's cheating on his fiance. I mean, pick a lane pick a lane, like don't pick the robbing and murdering lane, obviously. But if he's attracted to people in the transgender community, that's fine. Go live that life. But don't, don't propose to a woman who has no idea that you're going off and cheating and planning meetups and doing whatever you're doing, because that's not fair to her. That's what I mean by pick a lane. Pick a lane. What do you want to do? In the documentary I watched on this case, they said that it appears Philip has multiple addictions. And I'm going to say I have to agree with that theory. I think he was addicted to gambling. I think he was addicted to sex. He may even been addicted to lying. I, you know, I think he just has multiple addictions going on here. It's possible he needed money. And that's why he started luring women, offering these women offering private services to hotel rooms. Not because he wanted their services, but because he wanted their money. And maybe he was familiar with this practice because he had done this before, maybe in in not this, this manner. And he didn't think that these women would go and call police. I heard he was up to, I think it was $100,000 of debt. How much of that was med school and how much was gambling, I'm not sure. But that's a lot of debt. In April of 2009 is when he started his seven-day spree. And by April 20th, he was arrested and in custody. Philip and Megan's wedding, it was scheduled for August of 2009. I think I believe it was August 14th of 2009 which was just four months away from the time he committed the murder and the robberies. During this time, Megan, she was visiting her parents a lot. And this gave Philip a a lot of time alone. And this is when he was uh, going on Craigslist and looking for these women providing these services and luring them into these rooms and robbing them and murdering them. Even though Philip was arrested and charged with murder and robbery, Philip, he would not stand trial. He would not be sentenced and he would not go to prison. Because while being held in jail, he commits suicide in August of 2010, just over a year after being arrested. He pled not guilty, but there was just a mountain of evidence against him. He literally had Julissa's blood on him. The bullets matched. His fingerprints matched. He had his victim's underwear in his apartment. He had the ball gag. He had so much stuff connecting him to these three women's robberies and the murder. It was, it doesn't matter if he he pleads not guilty. There was just no way out of this. So he did kill himself in August of 2010. He and Megan, they were supposed to be married I believe it was on that same day, but a year earlier. Was this a poetic gesture or was this a way to get out of not being held accountable for the crimes he committed? We're not really sure. 
the details of his suicide are very odd and I have some lingering questions about it. It may be possible he did all of this to himself, but I'm not so sure. I need a little bit more convincing. I am going to get into detail about it now. So if you want to skip ahead about one minute, just do that now. When Philip was being held in jail, Megan, she breaks up with him. She's like, yeah, no, see you later. And when his body was discovered in the jail cell, her name was written in blood on the wall. And so was her nickname that he had for her pocket. There was Megan and pocket written in blood in his cell, like on the wall beside him. So Philip, somehow despite being recently released from Suicide Watch, he had a pen in his cell and plastic bags, at least three plastic bags, okay? First of all, that seems weird to me. This is the first thing that seems weird to me. A pen and three plastic bags. How did he have that stuff? He was just on Suicide Watch. So Philip, he had used that pen uh, to turn it into a knife and cut his arteries. I'm not exactly sure which arteries, but I believe he cut the ones in his feet and possibly also his wrists. He then shoves tissue down his own throat and they believe that's so he can't be revived. If somebody does find him and they try to give him mouth to mouth, nothing will make it through the airway. Then he puts plastic bags over his feet to collect the blood so the guards don't see the blood and try to revive him. And he also puts a plastic bag over his head. And during all of this, somehow writes Megan's name on the wall and her nickname. And he wasn't discovered until morning. Now it could be totally possible he did this to himself to ensure he would 100% be successful in his attempt, which he was, but maybe there's more to the story. It, I've never, I mean, he was smart. It's possible he put all those safeguards into place so he wouldn't fail. I just don't know how a prisoner who was recently on suicide watch would be allowed to have a pen in three plastic bags. So now you know why I said allegedly at the beginning of all, of all of this, of the beginning of the episode, all the evidence points to him. He was arrested and charged, but he was never found guilty because the trial never happened. Julissa's family, they never got to see the, the man who murdered their loved one be prosecuted. But some would argue maybe Julissa's family was spared a lengthy trial and graphic details of the crime that maybe they would care not to know so it's all in how you look at it I guess that is the story of the Craigslist killer and apparently there is more than just one incident involving Craigslist which I discovered while researching this case and it is possible I will cover another one later on in this year I read an article that alleged 86 murders can be tied to Craigslist and not all are solved. Let that sink in. I haven't been doing the hell knows lately, but I have heard people have grown to expect them. Some people have actually asked me, why don't you do your hell knows anymore? So I will, I will do it in, in this episode. 
To Philip Markoff, I say hell no. Please head on over to Hell No, a true crime podcast Instagram page. Give that a follow so you can get updates when a new episode is released. There's also a TikTok now uh, at the same name, which is hell no underscore true crime podcast, where I do a brief overview of each week's case. And if you could kindly please give a five-star rating, follow, like, share, whatever on whatever platform you are listening on, I would really appreciate that. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 